Hello, this is Intersection. Missouri's 2020 legislative session is on a break. It reconvenes in January next year. But at Intersection, we thought we'd use the breathing space to catch up with Columbia's state representatives about issues on the table in mid-Missouri. Representatives Kip Kendrick and Martha Stevens joined producer Sydney Steele for a discussion on the state of Missouri politics to look back on some legislative successes and look forward to their plans for the 2020 legislative session, including topics from payday lending to Medicaid. Here's their conversation. Can I first just have you each introduce yourselves and kind of let our listeners know what parts of Columbia you represent? Sure. Uh, so my name is Representative Martha Stevens. Uh, I represent the 46th district. Uh, it's all here in Columbia within city limits, mostly covering uh, the west and southwest parts of uh, the city. Yeah, Representative Kip Kendrick. I represent the 45th district, which is uh, central, northern, eastern parts of the city. Can you each tell me how you got into state government and kind of what made you run for the office that you're in right now? I had been involved locally here in Columbia, worked on some campaigns, uh, but also been a neighborhood association president of a fairly large neighborhood in the central city for, for seven years. And uh, the opportunity came open uh, to where uh, the person who was holding the office before me was not going to uh, to run again for office. And we'd had some conversations about um, potentially uh, me running. And, uh, you know, he was very supportive of that idea and actually um, encouraged me to do so. And, uh, you know, I hadn't really been thinking about it at that point. I, I kind of figured I'd run for office at some point. I figured it'd be later in my life, maybe towards the end of a career. But windows only come open so long and stay open so, uh, you know, for a short period of time. So at that point, I decided to make the jump and uh, and have enjoyed it. I kind of got into Jefferson City politics when I was in graduate school. I was getting my master's in social work here at Mizzou, and I was doing the social work program with an emphasis in public policy. And so in 2013, I did my full-time 40 hours a week practicum uh, with the lobbyists for Planned Parenthood, and that was kind of my introduction to public policy here in Missouri. Um, went on to get hired by Planned Parenthood um, and did a lot of work around reproductive rights, uh, but then also working on uh, Medicaid expansion on that campaign for a couple of years. Um, the, I never intended to run for office. That's not anything I'd ever really thought about. Um, but again, uh, kind of similar to Kip's story, there was an opportunity. Um, Stephen Weber was the previous rep for eight years and termed out. Um, and so I had a lot of uh, folks encourage me to throw my hat in the ring um, and to continue to be an advocate, but instead of doing it on the grassroots side, uh, to do it as an elected official. So uh, I ran in 2016, and I just got reelected in 2018, and uh, I plan to run again next year. That's very exciting. So you guys both seem to have had a sort of passion for public service even before getting involved in politics. Yeah, I would say that that's true. I mean, I yeah, the, the work that I did with the Medicaid Coalition, Planned Parenthood, um, I think just also in my background as a social worker, I mean, that's a pretty um, important element of public service and uh, working towards social and economic justice is kind of rooted uh, in social work. So it seems to be a good fit uh, as an elected official. Yeah, I mean, likewise, I, I love public service. I, I was a social worker for uh, approximately seven years, uh, worked in higher education as well. Um, as I said, I neighborhood association president and, and uh, worked with the city of Columbia to put together uh, you know, neighborhood leadership programs. And um, it just, yeah, I, I love public service. It's, um, you know, it's a 
a true joy to to be able to to represent people, but then also you know to try to make a change at the local and state level. So a large portion of Columbia and both of your districts, I'd say, are college students, right? So does this affect the way that you represent your district or craft your legislative priorities? It, a- absolutely, it does. Uh, you know, I mean, it's uh, representative government. Um, you know, when you when you're running for office as a representative, you. you it, I assume I speak for Martha here a little bit too. You kind of step back and you're like, what does it mean to be in that role? And, uh, you know, at times it means leading, uh, taking the lead on certain issues, but it's also about representing the issues that are important to your district and kind of stepping back at times and, and trying to understand what those issues are that are critical. And, um, you know, it's, it's a good part of the legislation that I filed uh, revolves around the issue of student debt. And clearly that's a major issue in this district, the state, around the nation. Um, but then also, you know, my, my work on budget revolves around a lot of issues that are important here uh, to Boone County, to mid-Missouri. When I go out, when I door knock, a lot of the folks that I represent are faculty and staff. Um, of course, I have some students as well. Um, and so funding is definitely an issue that comes up time and time again because um, we've seen continued cuts in higher education um, over the years. So I, I know that that's a, a signif- significant issue for the folks that I represent in the district. And of course, I support the legislation that Kip's put forward when it comes to student debt and uh, other issues around supporting students in higher education. Mm-hmm. Um, Kip, you brought up that you do some work on the budget. I know that that's a lot of the work that you do. Can you tell me a little bit about how that might be different than, say, the way that Martha works day to day in Jefferson City? Right. Being in a minority party is is uh, presents its own challenges. Being in a super minority, uh, that but much more challenging. Uh, but that doesn't mean you just you know you throw up your hands and walk away from. Uh, the work that you're supposed to do and, and how to best represent uh, your district and, and the people that you uh, that elected you. So, uh, you know, I found that the budget committee has been a place where I'm most effective and, uh, you know, put a lot of time and energy into the budget committee and, and learning the different departments, learning the different budget bills, serve as ranking minority member on the budget committee. And, you know, it's a lot of time and, and energy, but it's, uh, but it's critical to the district uh, and to the state you know, it's a, it's a place where you can get things done, you can move money around, you can defend uh, certain programs, uh, but you can also, you know, have a long-term plan to to try to uh, to build up programs through through funding. And, you know, passing legislation is important, but sometimes legislation becomes unfunded mandates. And so uh, being on the budget side of things, you, you get a chance to really impact, the obviously, the budget and uh, the priorities that the state sets. And you brought up earlier that you're both in the super minority party in Missouri. Would you guys like to talk a little bit about the challenges that might come with that or even some of the successes or joys? I I knew what I was walking into of being an advocate down there that I was going to be in the super minority. You know, that being said, I've tried very hard to file legislation that has good evidence behind it that I think can get buy-in from the Republican majority. In 2018, I worked across the aisle with folks to get a bill that I had filed, passed, to extend health care coverage for new moms who need substance use disorder treatment. Um, so yes, we are in the super minority, but I do see uh, Democrats get bills passed. And you, you know, you, you got to go across the aisle. And, you know, sometimes that means your name's not on it, but that doesn't matter because it's about improving communities and people's lives. So I think it's really important just to find those allies to work with. 
and and try to get some good stuff done. Um, that being said, I mean, of course, there are bills that I file that I know have a slim chance of, you know, maybe even getting a hearing. And, and that's a reality that we face. But that doesn't mean that we don't in committee or on the House floor stand up, file it as an amendment, have the discussion, you know, let uh, folks know that we care about this issue and that we're trying to pursue it, even if we don't have the votes, um, to continue to be an advocate for good progressive policies. And Martha was it was very uh, successful in her first year getting you know the legislation she is working on wrapped up in with the bill that was moving and and got it across the finish line in her first year, and that's um, you know that's remarkable for any legislator. So, you know, kudos to her for being able to do that, especially in a super minority. It, it's challenging. A lot of times it's uh, plain defense. Once you get down there, then you truly understand uh, how complex it is and, and what it means to be in a super minority. Um, you know, a majority party has the, the ability, obviously, to, to set the agenda, to to refer bills to committee, to, to determine what bills are coming up in committee, to have, uh, you know, setting the floor calendar, um, recognizing individuals uh, called on for um, to be able to offer amendments on certain legislation. Uh, there's just a lot of control that comes with being in a majority party, and especially in a supermajority. Uh, as I said before, it's, you know, it's, it represents a lot of challenges, but you, know, it, you, you, you have to rise to that challenge. You have to find ways to be effective. I, I find some joy in the successes that we've been able to have, uh, success I've been able to have on the budget. I, you know, I feel I'm proud of the work I'm able to get done there. I don't, you know, it's not like I have my name on any budget bills or, you know, sometimes I don't even have my names on the budget amendments that, you know, that I have worked to, to get through, but that's, but that's fine. I mean, you, you know, you, you do what you can for the district uh, and you do what you can with the reality of, of being in a super minority and, and you keep pushing forward uh, because there are plenty of issues that um, that are bipartisan or nonpartisan that we need to address to push this state forward. And, uh, you know, as Martha said, it's finding those, latching onto those, pushing them uh, to make uh, this state better, whether it's, uh, you know, Republican district or Democratic district and just moving the state uh, in a better direction. You're listening to Intersection on KBIA. I'm Janet Saidi. We're talking with state representatives Kit Kendrick and Martha Stevens, and we're talking with them about their experiences as minority party Democrats in a supermajority state. You can listen to the full conversation and more of our political coverage on KBIA.org. Producer Sydney Steele asked Martha Stevens about her bill that passed to extend medical coverage to new mothers in need of substance abuse treatment. That was something, again, the opioid epidemic is something that I think is a really important issue, and it's something that I've had a lot of legislation around, um, because I think it also, um, besides those directly impacted by the disease of addiction and family members, um, there's a lot of collateral damage and a lot of um, economic costs um, that, that comes along with that. Um, so, you know, again, pass, getting that bill passed, um, in 2018 to support new moms um, was important. Um, you know, as far as other legislation, you know, we're still um, anticipate next year some of the bills that will come forward around that. We've had success in the in the House passing, like the prescription drug monitoring program. Um, that's something that um, we've passed overwhelmingly in the House, um, and it will come up again next year. I think as far as wins, I think a lot of times we play a lot of defense. So sometimes a lot of our wins as Democrats is making 
making sure bad legislation doesn't pass, frankly. Um, and that's something, you know, last year there were quite a handful of bad bills that um, luckily did not pass um, that we think will probably come forward again this year. What are some of those that you were able to keep from getting passed? Um, so I think one of the biggest ones was the issue around uh, redoing Title IX, mm -hmm. the Title IX procedure. Uh, that, that was a major issue. It got a lot of um, attention, and rightfully so, in the state. Uh, I suspect it'll be back, but uh, there is a major attempt to to rewrite uh, the Title IX process uh, and how uh, complaints around uh, sexual assault, uh, domestic violence, dating violence are actually handled at the um, at the college level. Um, and you know, regardless of of why that issue is being pushed. And for those um, who aren't familiar with why it was being pushed, they should read uh, Ed McKinley's uh, work that he did with Kansas City Star, doing some excellent reporting on this topic. Uh, but, you know, just looking at the legislation as a whole, uh, you know, what, what there was an attempt to do was to take a college disciplinary process where colleges have uh, the ability to handle every disciplinary process uh, on their own and to make that into a state issue. And that's, that's a major overreach uh, of government. That's a government intrusion into private colleges, into public colleges, telling them how to handle their disciplinary process and telling them, you don't know what's best to make your college campus safe. The state knows best. The government knows best on how to make your college campus safe. And if you kick a student out, well, they better have a process to, to potentially get back into college. Can you imagine the state of Missouri telling private employers that, hey, I'm sorry, I don't think that that sexual harassment allegation should have led to the firing of that individual. We're going to make you hire that individual back. You can't, you can't get rid of that individual for sexual harassment. It didn't reach clear and convincing evidence that that was sexual harassment. So, or that sexual assault that took place on your, at your place, private place of employment, that didn't reach the level of clear and convincing evidence. We're going to, we're going to make you hire that individual back um, and take them back and, and, you know, deal with it. That's, that's a horrible intrusion of government into private entities. Um, and, you know, that was just not enough part of this conversation on the Title IX rewrite. Uh, that's a private disciplinary process. Can you imagine if the state of Missouri gets involved in all academic disputes as well and, and says, you know, that I don't know that they, uh, I don't know, I don't think they cheat on that exam. You probably shouldn't give that person an F. It's just, it's ludicrous. And, and you know, for, for people who tout small government, that was anything but small government. That was the biggest government bill that I've seen in my time there, filed from either side of the aisle. Yeah, it was, I think, one of the, you know, something that we tracked very closely. Um, and I think, you know, to echo Kip a little bit, I mean, I think um, it kind of got stopped in its tracks um, because of journalists reporting and because of the Sunshine Law and all these things to really get the intent of uh, where this came from, which was uh, it was the priority of a lobbyist um, whose son had um, been kicked out of a school uh, because of it, um, issues around Title IX. We've talked a little bit about some of the big issues that have happened, sort of statewide issues, but what do you guys think are the most important issues facing people in Columbia and what Columbia residents should sort of be looking out for in the next legislative session? Um, well, I think, you know, the things that we work on at the state level impact every community, and that includes Columbia. So 
um, you know, issues around like legislation that I've have filed around regulating payday lenders. That's a conversation that we've had at the local level where different non for profits have been part of that discussion. You know, local non for profits and uh, community banks have tried to step in and, and do some work to try to be an alternative to a payday lender. But I think issues, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of folks about um, being uninsured. I mean, we do have a really great uh, healthcare infrastructure here in, in mid-Missouri and in Columbia, um, but we also have a lot of uh, working poor that don't have employee-based healthcare. Um, so if we pass Medicaid expansion, which is something that I'm really excited about, that's going to be on the 2020, well, advocates are working right now to gather signatures, um, but I'm optimistic that it's going to be on the 2020 ballot. Um, and so... You know, I think that that Medicaid expansion is something that we could have done uh, starting in 2013, uh, but unfortunately our legislature um, has ignored that uh, real need here in Missouri. And as a result, we have over 200,000 uh, people in the state that uh, don't have access to health care, to preventative health care, um, and have to make some hard decisions um, about how they're going to, you know, pay for things if they have to go to the emergency room. Um, we've since 2014 had nine rural hospitals close their doors, um, and that is related to us not expanding Medicaid. I mean, over these past year, uh, six or seven years, we've had, um, you know, we've left billions of dollars on the table. I mean, we're paying for other states to, um, you know, fund their Medicaid expansion programs. We're one of 14 states that hasn't done it. So I could go on for quite a while, I feel like, <laughs> about all the benefits um, that you know, Medicaid expansion has uh, for individuals and families and healthy communities, but also for our economy. Uh, it's a job creator. Um, you know, again, back to folks uh, suffering from substance use disorder and the opiate epidemic, um, that's an opportunity for, po for folks to actually get treatment. Because if you don't have insurance and you need treatment, it's unaffordable for people. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you brought that up um, about the Medicaid expansion possibly going on the ballot in 2020. Um, we saw in 2018 a record number of ballot initiatives coming up, and those were a lot of things that in other states have been passed out of the legislature, such as the Clean Missouri Ethics Reform. So what are your thoughts on the citizens sort of taking these issues into their own hands and getting them on the ballot and then passing these issues? 2018, I was so thrilled to see um, the ballot initiatives that passed. I endorsed the medical marijuana uh, initiative that passed. Uh, the ethics reform was long overdue, and that just speaks to you know, citizens have been demanding real ethics, comprehensive ethics reform for years, and it just was not a priority of the supermajority. I mean, plain and simple. And so the ballot initiative process is one that I think is um, so important. I mean, we are all stakeholders, and when citizens can come together and organize and get something on the ballot uh, to make their voices heard and put something into law that they want and they demand, I think it's, it's positive and it makes for a very healthy democracy. Between the August and, and November 2018 ballots, we saw um, you know right to work fail, um, protecting uh, protecting unions. Uh, we saw medical marijuana pass. We saw a minimum wage increase. We saw comprehensive ethics reform and an end to gerrymandering. Uh, what I think that tells me is I think that there are a lot more uh, Democrats out there than truly realize or identify <laughs> as Democrats, because uh, that's kind of. Uh, not kind of it. it a lot of uh, the priorities of uh, Missouri Democrats uh, for a number of years. 
but you know, is is important. Is good to see those. You know, Democrats uh, underperformed at the uh, on the ballot in in November 2018, uh, but a lot of uh, the issues that we've been pushing for and fighting for in Jefferson City for a number of years uh, were passed at the ballot. Um, you know, it's. I hope that uh, Democrats uh, don't uh, underperform in 2020 Missouri. If that's the case, I still hope Medicaid expansion passes. That's something that uh, will benefit the entire state, and I think it's reflective of uh, what we've been pushing for, um, not, ju- not just the economic uh, importance of, of passing Medicaid expansion and bringing those federal dollars to the state and uh, making sure that we're shoring up uh, uh, rural hospitals and rural health care providers as well as you know hospitals and in cities as well. Uh, it's a critical uh, issue for all healthcare in the state of Missouri, but also the the human side of it uh, to make sure that we can uh, you know, provide access to, to healthcare for individuals who are needing it, the, the working poor here in the state of Missouri, uh, who um, you know oftentimes work multiple jobs but just don't have uh, employee-based uh, health insurance or employer-based health insurance, but then also don't have the uh, money to be able to afford it because they don't qualify for a subsidy because under the Affordable Care Act, they should qualify for uh, Medicaid coverage. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, sometimes when I have conversations with folks about what it means to get Medicaid here in Missouri, I mean, it's 19% of the federal poverty level. I mean, that is very, very hard to qualify for. And so, for example, um, and I haven't seen these numbers in a couple of years, so I might be approximately like $50 off or something. But like for a single mom with two children, if she makes more than a little over, I think it's like three twenty a month, that's too much to qualify for health insurance through Medicaid. Um, and so I think that people don't realize, and I think that cut, that that um, huge cut in Medicaid benefits happened in 2005. Um, and we just haven't um, changed it since then. And so um, I think that folks don't, don't realize, um, you know, what that means for families. Um, so I'm excited about that. That Medicaid gap is is very real, and and what it does it doesn't get talked about enough, but it really pushes up healthcare costs for everyone else, uh, for employers, uh, for for us as individuals. It pushes up our healthcare costs here in the state of Missouri. Uh, you know, studies have been done that show that states haven't expanded Medicaid. Um, you know, uncompensated care is much higher than in states that have expanded Medicaid, and then uncompensated care gets passed on to someone. I mean, those are you know those negotiations between the ho- big hospitals, uh, healthcare providers, and the insurance companies are going to pass on those rates to the uh, rate increases to the employers, uh, as well as the employees and individuals who uh, who buy off the marketplace. So our rates are going up um, as a state because we have not expanded. This is Intersection. We're listening to a conversation between KBIA producer Sydney Steele and two of Columbia's state representatives in Jefferson City, Martha Stevens and Kip Kendrick. We're talking about Medicaid, health insurance in Missouri, and the possibility of Medicaid expansion in 2020. You can hear the full conversation on KBIA.org. looking for next year what what do you think will be happening what efforts are you guys sort of planning for the next legislative session well i'll, I'll use this as my uh, annual psa um 
to to ask uh, all of uh, the state of Missouri to watch out and and protect against additional tax cuts uh, that you know that benefit the wealthiest uh, in our state. Um, you know, right now, uh, without getting into the weeds too much, uh, revenue reports, daily revenue reports, uh, look like revenues up uh, you know six plus percent. That's not uh, an accurate reflection of where we're going to be at the end of the year. Um, my concern is that we enter the next legislative session with uh, you know revenue looking like it's up six plus percent, and then uh, you get some individuals saying, "See, we got to cut taxes again. We we can't just hang on to this money. We have to cut taxes." Um, you know, and and I think it's important for individuals to remember uh, that we are only two years into a five-year phase in of Senate Bill 509, which was called uh, the most historic tax cut in, in Missouri's history, passed in 2014. Um, and so we're we're only two years, and we've only hit two years of those triggers. Um, and so we've got we've got a lot more phasing in to do before that's fully phased. And uh, you know, the state right now cannot afford additional tax cuts. Yeah, I think um, we'll probably see some of the bills that uh, were pushed last year um, that we kind of discussed earlier. Some of these <laughs> these bad bills, the campus carry, Title Nine. Um, and so um, I'm sure you know people will f- usually file bills uh, continuously. So um, I think um, some of those bad bills will be back. Um, but for me individually, I'm going to continue to work on legislation around um, health, different health care issues, legislation that supports low-income families um, and women. And um, I'm sure I, you will probably see, you know, last year, one of the highest priorities was a pretty extreme um, anti-choice bill, House Bill 126, and I'm, I'm sure we'll have anti-choice legislation that will also be filed this year as well, um, and we'll continue to fight against those bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, so something I'll be working on, um, make the announcement, uh, this is a politically probably uh, an interesting time to be doing it, but I'll be uh, pushing for a uh, two-cent fuel tax in an election year, uh, but a two cent fuel tax increase, and but the importance of that two 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 cent fuel tax increase is that uh, it comes underneath the Hancock Amendment. We can do it as a general assembly. We can do that two cent ga- uh, fuel tax increase, but w- most importantly, what it does is allow MoDOT to bond four hundred and fifty million dollars um, up front, and so it really leverages that two cents into four hundred and fifty plus million dollars. Uh, a direct infusion into infrastructure repair across the state of Missouri, uh, then you use that two cents to pay down uh, the bond payments uh, for a period of you know anywhere from seven to ten years, and then once uh, that bond those bonds are paid paid back, uh, it will actually um, sunset one cent of that fuel tax increase to so leave a permanent one cent fuel tax increase uh, for the ongoing maintenance of those repairs that have been done. Uh, but it's important here in mid-Missouri that we understand that, you know, while we are, you know, have seen um, funding uh, come through for the replacement of the uh, Roachport Bridge along I-70 and how critical that was to Missouri's economy, there are many more Roachport Bridges that exist in the state of Missouri. Uh, that was just one bridge um, that was very expensive, one bridge that uh, is going to be replaced. But we, our infrastructure problems uh, and issues need to be addressed long term. Uh, my two cent fuel tax increase with a bonding uh, proposal is not a, a long term solution, but it's, I think it's a good intermittent solution to at least uh, put some more uh, money in the hands of MoDOT to allow the director and, uh, and the team working there at MoDOT to, uh, to make some important repairs.
That's today's Intersection. This episode was produced by KDIA's Sydney Steele with Olivia Love and Bill Finn. You can find more coverage of Missouri politics and more episodes of Intersection at kdia.org. I'm Janet Saidi. Thank you for listening.